The Kissel boys were born and raised in what we used to think of as the quintessential American family, like something you'd watch on some wholesome sitcom. They were as competitive as they were ambitious, and those qualities would take both brothers on their very own unique successful journeys in life. But the younger of the two, Robert, he always seemed to have a bit of an edge on older brother Andrew. He was taller, more athletic, more popular, more social, friendlier, and things simply just came easy. Robert was the brother who followed the rules. He maneuvered wisely, cautiously, thoughtfully. Andrew preferred the quick and easy, the fastest way to winning, even if it wasn't exactly the right way. It didn't matter because getting to the finish line first was the only thing that mattered. The irony is the manner in which both of these brothers would come to meet an equally tragic end three years and thousands of miles apart in ways and for reasons that to this day remain mysterious and nearly impossible to reconcile. This is a special vacation series presentation of California Dreaming, the tale of the Kissel family curse. Hello, dreamers, and welcome back to this multi-part series entitled The Tale of the Kissel Family Curse. It is a vacation series. The story takes place in the northeastern part of the United States and also in Hong Kong. It was recommended to me by listener Nate B., who sent me a book about this story entitled A Family Curse by Kevin McMurray. I'm going through the book as we are going through this series, but also referencing some articles online, which I will include in the show notes. This is the fourth part of the series. Parts one through three are episodes 183, 184, and 185. So if you haven't listened to those, you're going to want to pause this, go back and listen to those first, and then come back to this one. Or you might want to wait until I'm finished with the series and binge all of them at once. I did want to have part five for you ready for this weekend as well, but I fell behind and I'm taking sort of an unplanned trip to California this week. But I'm going to get this one out for you today. It's Sunday, and I will be back on track as soon as I get back to Nevada. The last time we left off, we were in the middle of Nancy Kissel's 2005 trial, which was taking place in Hong Kong. She was being accused of the first-degree murder of her husband, Robert Kissel, by drugging him with a milkshake, waiting for him to become incapacitated so that she would be able to bludgeon him about the head with a statue or a figurine. There was a lot of damning evidence coming out at trial, but there may also be hints of possible signs of postpartum depression going on, though that was not an element of Nancy's defense. We are going to try to finish getting through her trial, and I'm hoping to switch gears back to older brother Andrew Kissel very soon, who himself is on the cusp of some very major problems of his own. So let's get back to our story. In the last part of the series, we left off in the middle of the Kissel's housekeepers testifying at Nancy's murder trial. If you recall, we had gone over some parts of the second housekeeper, Connie McAreg's testimony. She not only had nice things to say about Robert Kissel, but also mostly nice things to say about Nancy as well, at least up until the birth of the third Kissel child. 
It was then she testified that she noticed a change in Nancy's overall mood and personality. She had gone from friendly and bubbly to depressed and quick-tempered. Connie said if there had ever been a time when they had a dispute, they would have been able to work things out and move past it. But after their youngest child was born, if there were disputes, there was no more getting past it. The tension would just linger and it never went away. Eventually, Connie and Nancy would not even speak to one another at all. Then it seemed as though Nancy had just decided to throw all of her time into volunteer work with the children's school, but it didn't appear to be in order to spend time with the children. She just became so wrapped up in these extracurricular activities. And in addition to that, Nancy had taken up a new hobby, photography, which took even more time away from her kids, leaving them in the care of the nannies instead. In discussing what happened at the Kissel apartment on Wednesday, November 5th, 2003, three days after Robert was last heard from, Connie testified that, like Maximina, she too noticed in the living room that a rug had been rolled up and stowed away between the sofa and the wall. It looked as though the whole thing would have been way too heavy and cumbersome for Nancy to have rolled it up and stuffed it behind the sofa on her own, especially when she had been complaining about some serious injuries to her ribs. When Connie asked about it, Nancy told her that she had called maintenance to help her. That same day, Robert's co-worker from Merrill Lynch, David, he had called the apartment looking for Robert. It was Connie who answered the phone. She related to him about the weird things that were going on inside the house and thought maybe it might be best for him to contact the local law enforcement, which he ended up doing. Remember, He's the one that went and filed that missing persons report not too long after Nancy had gone down to the police station to file a complaint about Robert having physically assaulted her. That same day, Nancy sent Connie out to run an errand to pick up a new comforter for her bed. Nancy explained that she could no longer sleep with the old comforter because it still smelled like Robert and it was too triggering for her. Connie did as she was told purchasing a brand new comforter for the Kissel marital bed. Once the testimony of the Kissel's housekeepers was complete, the next person called to the stand was a gentleman by the name of Edwin Chow. He was a maintenance employee at the expat apartment complex that the Kissels resided at. He was one of the four workers that helped to move the rolled up rug from the Kissel apartment down into their basement storage locker. He told the court approximately how long the rug was. It was about 8 feet or 2.5 meters in length, so plenty long for a man of average size and height to fit in. He said that both ends of the rug were tightly sealed with a lot of packaging tape. Edwin told the court that the rug was so heavy that it required a total of four of them, using not one but two dollies to transport it downstairs. He also told the court that an awful stench was emanating from the rug. He said that the smell was kind of like salted fish that Asian people eat. Now, dreamers, I have an idea of what Edwin is describing here just due to the fact that my mom has regularly had various types of dehydrated seafood preserved with salt kept around the house. It's kind of like jerky, like beef jerky or whatever, but made out of fish and squid and 
Oh man, she would go out in the backyard and put these strips of ocean jerky on some hot coals and it smelled terrible. And it's the reason why to this day, I refuse to eat anything that comes from the ocean. I've been completely and totally traumatized by it. I've never smelled a decomposing body, but I sure the hell know what dehydrated fish smells like and it is not pretty. And Edwin and his co-workers put the rug in the storage locker. He went back upstairs to return the keys to Nancy. She asked him if everything was okay, at which time he said that it was, except for the smell. She paid him and he left. After Edwin Cho's testimony, the prosecution presented a witness and evidence that showed four days before Robert's murder on October 29, 2003, that Nancy paid for 10 Rohypnol pills. These are tranquilizers used to treat extreme cases of insomnia. They are 10 times more potent than Valium, and they are only to be used on a short-term basis, and they have been known to be used as a date-rape drug. The day after Robert's murder, on Monday, November 3, 2003, an employee at a local furniture store testified that Nancy had shopped at that store that morning. Among the things that she purchased were some new rugs, a new comforter, bed sheets, some throw pillows, and a lounge chair. The following day, Tuesday, November 4th, Nancy came back and purchased two more area rugs. The next person to testify was Robert's co-worker and friend who reported him missing, David No. He told the court that he and Robert last spoke around 5 p.m. in the afternoon of Sunday, November 2nd. They were both scheduled to be on a conference call about two and a half hours later that evening, so they discussed that call and the things that they wanted to go over. Remember, they were set to close that $14 billion distressed debt buyout deal that week, which they were all anxious to wrap up. However, David told the court that as they were talking, he noticed that Robert began trailing off his sentences as if he was tired or he had been drinking. Robert began speaking slowly and was starting to become somewhat incoherent, which at the time, David kind of poked fun at Robert about it, not knowing just how serious the situation was becoming. They'd actually become pretty good friends over the years at work, so it was normal for the two of them to crack jokes at each other's expense. The conversation then went into how Robert was getting ready to talk to Nancy that evening about ending their marriage, as well as Robert's plan on how he was going to try to be awarded primary custody of their three kids. David had even told the court some of the things that I've mentioned to you earlier throughout this series, that Robert was prepared to go so far as to move out of the apartment that he shared with Nancy so she could invite her lover to come and live with her, so long as the arrangement made everything for the children go as smoothly and easily as possible. He did not want to disrupt their lives with their marital drama. David also told the court how Robert had confided in him over the spring and summer of 2003 as he was finding out more and more information about Nancy's extramarital affair with Mike Del Priore. Robert told him about all the visits Mike was making to their Vermont home while Nancy was there with the kids during the SARS outbreak. 
He related to David how he discovered Nancy had a second cell phone that she used exclusively to communicate with Mike, how he had installed software on Nancy's computer that allowed him to see what she was doing and who she was communicating with, which, of course, was her lover. David also told the court how Robert described some of the websites that Nancy was visiting where she was researching various types of drugs and which ones could lead to an overdose or to death. He testified as to how Robert had hired the private investigator, Frank Shea, after a couple of months of surveilling Nancy's activities at the Vermont home. They were able to confirm all the comings and goings of Mike Del Priore throughout that summer. And David described how Nancy's affair had been crushing for Robert. The day after David provided his testimony, something happened with Nancy's defense team. The lead attorney representing her, a gentleman by the name of Gary Plowman, he just quit. Just up and quit his job as Nancy's primary defense counsel. By all accounts, the courtroom observers thought he was doing an effective job representing Nancy. But after he resigned, word started to spread that Nancy was a nightmare of a client to work with. And as the days passed, she was only getting worse to the point where he felt like he could no longer do his job. Plowman was replaced by a fairly well-known attorney named Alexander King, who tended to present a much more Americanized style in the courtroom which was thought to have been more of an advantage for Nancy's side of the case. The defense next focused in on the official police investigation into the missing persons report and subsequent murder investigation, highlighting the missteps taken by the Hong Kong Police Department. And the book, A Family Curse, goes into a lot of detail about this, but the things that were pointed out, like the officers not writing down specific enough notes about their findings at the Kissel's home and some details about whether or not the search warrant they had obtained the evening of November 6th when they ultimately discovered Robert's body in the basement, whether or not they got that warrant while under the impression they were investigating a domestic violence report filed by Nancy or the missing persons report filed by Robert's co-worker, or if they obtained the warrant with the intentions of investigating a murder. I personally was not impressed by any of the defense's attempts at dragging the Hong Kong Police Department because at the end of the day, when the search warrant was executed after they searched the apartment, they asked Nancy if she had a storage unit, which she at first denied. But then in short order, she realized that she could not run from this anymore and ended up turning the key to the storage unit over to the police. And they ultimately found Robert's body rolled up in that rug. There were also attempts to portray Robert as a volatile person who had a drinking and a cocaine problem. But all of that was quickly shut down by a number of witnesses, friends and co-workers who insisted that Robert was a solid employee at Merrill Lynch and that he never did anything that was out of the ordinary to excess. If he drank, it was socially, and it was minimally, and it was appropriate. Searches of Robert's office at Merrill Lynch revealed that he had several of the email correspondences between his wife and her lover in his desk drawer, along with a number of written reports sent to him by his private investigator, Frank Shea, confirming that there was indeed an affair, and it was ongoing. A forensic computer analyst named Chang Chung Kit 
testified that he uncovered countless email exchanges between Nancy and Mike Del Priore on her personal laptop computer. In addition to that, he found internet searches involving sleeping pills, medicines, overdoses, medications that cause heart attacks, drug overdoses, as well as a visit to a website describing rohypnol and whether or not it could be detected if mixed into a drink. Nancy's defense attorney was able to fire back with some unbecoming internet activities on Robert's part as well, specifically on the home computer. On or around April 3rd, 4th, and 5th, 2003, during the times when Nancy and the children were away, sexually explicit searches were made on the computer, several things involving gay sex in Taiwan, bisexual gay males, really explicit searches, taking the user to various websites containing sexually explicit videos. There were also searches for key terms like married and lonely in Hong Kong, wife is a bitch, MPEG sex, Taiwan female escorts and companions in Taiwan. The defense pointed out that Robert frequently made business trips to Taiwan So really, this is the first time we're getting somewhat of a glimpse of a different side of Robert, who seemed to harbor possibly some secrets of his own based on what the forensic analysis of the home computer revealed. Does it have an impact on our overall opinion of Robert Kissel? For me, not so much. I'm not really put off by the things that people look at on the Internet. But if Robert was seeking escort services while on business trips, I'm not cool with that at all. But there wasn't any information that ever came out about that happening beyond his internet searches. And I believe he never really actually navigated to any of the websites. These were just pulled up Google results, if it was him that did these searches. And that time in April while Nancy was away were the only time these searches were ever made. Um, That was a time when we know that Robert was becoming aware of what Nancy was up to herself. So it's for me kind of like tit for tat. But Nancy's defense is using Robert's internet search history in order to paint him in a pretty bad light. But you know what? That hardly justifies getting bludgeoned to death. But now on redirect, the computer analyst was asked more questions about the various websites brought up by the defense that Robert supposedly visit. And like I said, it turned out that everything that was listed, those were just Google results. He never clicked on none of the websites were ever clicked on it, meaning that whoever Googled whatever keywords that they were looking for when they put enter or search. Those were the websites that populated in the top results. There's no indication that anything was clicked on or navigated to beyond the results page. The next bit of testimony came from the forensic toxicologist who examined the contents of Robert's liver and stomach during his autopsy. And what he found was a mixture of a number of sedatives, antidepressants, and drugs meant to induce sleep. All of the drugs found in Robert's system had been prescribed and obtained by Nancy. And as far as the amount of alcohol found in Robert's system, it was maybe the equivalent of a sip of beer. So there was no significant amount of alcohol that had been consumed 
The toxicologist did point out that in the decade or so that he'd examined drugs in a decedent, that he had never seen such a mixture as deadly and potent as the one he had found in Robert's system, even in cases of suicide where an excessive amount of drugs had been taken, it had never been as much or as bad as what he found in Robert's liver and stomach. So does this mean the bludgeoning didn't even need to happen? If Robert had been given such a deadly mix of drugs, would it have been enough to cause him to go into cardiac arrest and overdose on his own? I'll expand on that a little bit later. It seems that the toxicologist is suggesting that. However, I've been under the impression that Robert had been given various drugs and sedatives for quite some time leading up to his death. So I'm one to believe that his body was actually building up a tolerance to being drugged all the time. The defense attempted to poke holes in the toxicologist's findings as he was not able to clearly pinpoint how much of each drug had been ingested or when the drugs had been ingested or exactly how the drugs got into his system. But the toxicologist did point out that by the time they had a chance to examine Robert at autopsy, his body had been decomposing for five days, which makes it virtually impossible to get an accurate measurement of the amount of drugs that were actually ingested. The defense was able to get the toxicologist to admit that he would have been able to get a more accurate measurement of any alcohol present in Robert's system if he had had a urine sample or samples from the fluid from Robert's eyeball, but he did not get any of those samples. The toxicologist also had to admit that the decomposition processes could have accounted for traces of other drugs that were found in Robert's system and he could not say with complete certainty that the drugs that were in his system were taken orally. He also admitted that they did not test for cocaine, which was a thing Nancy claimed Robert used habitually, telling the court that they just don't have a system of testing that is able to detect anything and everything in the decedent's body. The bottom line, they weren't told to test for cocaine, so no test was administered. So for me... If Nancy was in a heated fight with Robert, if he was in an alcohol and drug-fueled rage, she could have told police he was drunk and high on cocaine at the time, and it would have been a thing that the toxicologist could have looked for at the time. So I guess it was a misstep by Nancy and an afterthought that she came up with a little bit too late. So next to testify was the professor of pharmacology at the University of Hong Kong, and he was questioned about the effects these drugs would have had on Robert Kissel had he been given a milkshake laced with the drugs later found in his system. He told the court that Robert would have become very sleepy and his speech would have become noticeably slurred and Robert would have little to no memory of anything that would have been going on during the time that he was being affected by the drugs. Now his neighbor, Andrew Tanzer, the other person who was served the same milkshake, his symptoms set in within 15 minutes of finishing it. He became very sleepy, very disoriented. His speech was slurred, and when he finally woke up, he had no memory of anything after drinking the shake. But when it came to Robert, the side effects of the drugs apparently took longer to hit him than they did Mr. Tanzer. There was surveillance video of Robert playing with one of the kids at a nearby park about 40 minutes after finishing his milkshake. He appeared to be walking and behaving normally in the videos, 
There was more video of Robert talking on the phone more than an hour after ingesting the milkshake, and he still appeared to be lucid in the images. However, this phone call that I just talked about a little while ago, it was a call that he was having with his coworker, David No, and he had previously testified that he was talking to Robert on that call and his speech was becoming more and more slurred to a point where he started making jokes about it. But the pharmacologist told the court that the drugs affect different people different ways. Not everyone is going to have the same symptoms in the same time frame. Even though Andrew Tanzer was considerably larger than Robert, it didn't matter because the drugs began affecting him much sooner than they began affecting Robert. And the toxicologist did point out, as I did a little while ago, it's likely that Robert Kissel had already built up a tolerance since there had been suspicion on his part and he had related those suspicions to some of his friends that Nancy had been slipping him something in his drinks. If she had been doing that for a while, then yes, Robert would have slowly built up a tolerance and the drugs would have taken longer to affect him than they did his friend Andrew Tanzer, despite Andrew being much bigger in size and stature. Now, there had been some talk during the trial about a baseball bat that Robert used to keep in a specific place in the bedroom that he could access easily if he needed to defend himself. Maximina had talked about the bat during her testimony, but at the time, the location of the bat was not known, but she remembered it well because whenever she vacuumed, she picked it up, she vacuumed and she put it back down. Well, the defense ended up entering the bat into evidence during the trial, and I will talk more about this later on. It was a little bit shady the way the defense went about it because they got the bat and never told anyone about it until they were in mid-trial. So the defense attorney asked Maximina if she was able to identify it as the bat that she used to have to vacuum around, and she said she couldn't be 100% sure. So what the defense is getting at here is that Nancy was defending herself when she hit Robert in the head because she says he was attacking her with the bat. So the forensic pathologist who examined Robert's fatal wounds was called to the stand. He told the court that Robert had suffered five blows to the right side of his head, and any one of those hits could have been fatal, but the combination of all of them caused Robert's skull to become crushed into his brain, ensuring that the five blows altogether would certainly be fatal. The pathologist also told the court at the time that Robert began being hit in the head with the object that he was laying down on his side, and because of the drugs found in his system, he was incapable of moving, much less able to defend himself from the five blows to his head. In fact, each blow to the head, one right after the other, all of which landed in one spot on Robert's head, coupled with the lack of defensive wounds, indicated that Robert was lying completely still at the time that he was being bludgeoned. Those blows were not delivered to a man who was charging towards Nancy wielding a bat. If that were the case, there would have been a more random pattern of the blows to Robert and likely wounds to his hands and arms in an effort to defend himself from the blows. Each of those five blows was delivered to a sleeping or unconscious victim. If he had been attacking Nancy with the bat, this would have been a more frenzied fight. Nancy's longtime best friend and confidant of Robert's when his marriage to Nancy hit the skids did not show up to testify in person in Hong Kong, 
but rather provided a written deposition that was read into the court record. She stated in her deposition that she felt like Nancy and Robert had a very good, solid marriage, but found out later that that was all a front. And she assumed that it was the stress of living so far away from the United States. Bryna also said that Robert told her in one of their numerous phone conversations that he believed Nancy was trying to poison him and that he had hired a private investigator to get proof of her infidelity, as well as the emails that Nancy and Mike Del Priori had been sending to one another. He had those printed up. Robert told Bryna just about everything. But when it came to what Nancy was telling her, her best friend, Bryna was not getting the full story. They were so close. And she was not being open and honest about what was going on in her marriage. Bryna wrote about a time in June of 2003 when Robert's oldest daughter called him up and told him that Mike Del Priori was over there with his daughter. And this made Robert incredibly upset, feeling as though he is the one who should be in Vermont with his wife and kids, not the cable guy. Shortly after that, Bryna noted in her statement to the court that she had gotten an email from Robert where he expressed his disappointment and sadness that Nancy had completely ignored his 40th birthday. When the SARS epidemic had run its course, Nancy and the kids made their way back to Hong Kong towards the end of July of 2003 to get the kids ready for the upcoming school year. And in an email to Bryna, Robert expressed his hopes that he and Nancy could work through their marital problems. In fact, when he met Nancy at the airport when she flew back, her iciness towards him had thought a bit. She seemed somewhat happy to see him, and they even walked hand in hand through the terminal. A couple of months later, towards the end of September, Bryna received another email from Robert where he seemed to be content with the direction that things were going with Nancy and their relationship. At least he was continuing to be hopeful about it. They had started seeing a marriage counselor, but at some point Nancy had expressed her desire to get divorced, but in short order, she rolled back on that, reassuring Robert that she did love him, she did care about him, and that divorce wasn't a thing that she wanted. However, things went downhill again sometime in October when Robert became aware of the existence of that second secret cell phone which Nancy was using to continue to communicate with Mike Del Priori without being found out by Robert checking up on their cell phone bill. According to Bryna's deposition, it was then that Robert realized he was still being lied to, and that is when he began taking the steps towards divorce by consulting an attorney and having the paperwork drawn up. In a subsequent phone call with Robert, Bryna said that he told her that he planned to sit down with Nancy on Sunday, November 2nd and tell her all about his plans to file for divorce. Now, we know that Nancy had seen the divorce papers come through the fax machine before Robert had a chance to talk to her first. So she had become aware of his plans ahead of him being able to tell her face to face. We know that by 4 or 5 that afternoon, both Robert and their friend Andrew Tanzer had been served a spike milkshake. We know that Robert had spoken to a co-worker sometime after 5 p.m. as they were getting ready to make that conference call a couple of hours later to make sure that they were prepared for the huge deal that they were poised to close that upcoming week. And we know that on that 5 p.m. call, Robert was beginning to sound funny on the phone, slurring his words and whatnot. 
And we know when it came time for that late afternoon conference call, Robert failed to pick up his phone and he was never heard from again. By the following day, Robert's body was rolled up into a living room rug and stuffed behind the sofa. After Bryna's deposition was read into the court record, the prosecution rested their case just before the weekend. On Monday, it would mark the ninth week of Nancy's murder trial, and it would be the defense's turn to present their side of the story. This was an act of self-defense. That is what Nancy and her attorneys were set to present to the court. While the prosecution was delivering their side of the case, there were a number of times when the defense, while cross-examining witnesses, would attempt to portray Robert Kissel as a violent, hot-tempered man who drank and used drugs to excess. But they didn't gain very much traction, simply due to the fact that everyone who knew Robert saw him as a pretty, even-tempered guy and really never did anything to excess. The most anyone had to say about Robert flying off the handle was one incident where he may have punched a hole in a wall. And then there was an occasion where Bryna said in her deposition that Nancy told her of an incident when they were fighting and Robert pushed her up against the wall. Other than that, nobody testified as to any instances of domestic violence on Robert's part towards Nancy. So... It was going to be an uphill battle for Nancy's attorney to try and paint a picture of Robert being a violent, abusive husband. It didn't hurt that his client, Nancy, was very thin. She was small in stature. The time in jail also caused her complexion to become very pale. She was quite diminutive. So they had that to their advantage. But for me... It still doesn't take away from the fact that Robert died by way of having his skull bashed into his brains with five blows to the head, most likely while he was passed out from a drugged up milkshake. You don't have to be big to attack somebody that's unconscious. Nancy Kissel would be the first defense witness to take the stand. As Nancy spoke, she was barely audible. She hardly looked like all of the pictures of her that had been in the press. The beautiful, wealthy, blonde socialite that she had once been. She now had that librarian look. You know, I think I might have referenced before Jodi Arias. Kind of reminded me a lot of Dahlia DiPolito. Remember her? Oh, Dahlia that's like 5,000% one of my favorite cases ever. Yeah, Nancy was sporting the bookish look. Long, straight, stringy, dark hair, glasses. Hardly the image of a skull-bashing, roll-em-up-in-the-living-room rug killer. Nancy's parents and her sister were there in person to lend their support. So Nancy was asked about her marriage. And right away, before her attorney could even finish his sentence, Nancy turned on the waterworks, claiming she had no idea how to discuss these private matters so publicly. And for me, her sitting there crying, it's all meant to play into what her strategy was going to be, what she was going to do, which was she was going to blame the victim. She was going to blame the dead guy. 
she was getting prepared to thoroughly throw her dead husband and his reputation under the bus. Nancy told the court that their marriage had been crumbling for a long time, and it was all because of Robert's heavy drinking and heavy cocaine use. She described him as an alcoholic and an addict, and it all stemmed from the pressure that he was under at work. Because he was technically supposed to be working for his company on both the Hong Kong front and the United States front, so his entire life evolved around work pretty much 24 hours a day because of the time zone differences. He had to be up all hours working and it turned him into two different people. One minute he could be his normal self, cool, quiet, controlled, the Robert Kissel that most everybody else knew. And in the blink of an eye, he'd go completely off the deep end, ballistic, losing his temper at the drop of the hat without any kind of warning. But that was the Robert Kissel only Nancy knew. She, as his wife, bore the brunt of his temper and his outbursts and his rage. Nancy told the court that the drug use dated all the way back to 1989 while he was still going to business school and she was working three jobs to support him. It was so stressful for him that he turned to drugs and whenever he grew angry or agitated, he took it all out on her. Nancy said that while her husband was busy working around the clock, she became involved in doing volunteer work at the school her children attended and that was pretty much a full-time job for her, if not more so if there was something big planned at the school. And because she became so busy with her volunteer work, it caused Robert to become even more angry for her neglecting other things like the kids and the house, so he would say, and he would complain constantly that she was never around anymore. She said he pressured her to quit working at the school and to rather engage in activities that reflected better on them as a prominent couple, like working at the local Jewish temple that they attended. Nancy told the court that everything she did needed to improve their public image, that if she was going to work outside the home, that she needed to be paid for her time. And since she wasn't getting paid, that she needed to get back into her role as his wife and do the things that he needed her to do at home. And in addition to that, when it came to money, Robert controlled everything and constantly grilled her anytime she spent any money. Eventually, he started putting a limit on how much she was allowed to spend, and he needed to be made aware of every single purchase that she made. Nancy said the abuse towards her only intensified when they moved to Hong Kong in 1997. The pressure of the job increased tenfold, as did the horrible way in which she was treated. He was at the office all the time, and when he would come home, he would drink and take all of his frustrations out on her. But she had never confided in anyone about this, not to any of her friends, not to her parents, and not to her sister, because she was far too ashamed of being a battered and abused wife. The abuse carried over into their sex life as well. She said that Robert hated the way she looked after she started having kids. She had gained some weight. Her breasts weren't as perky as they'd once been. And it made him so angry that after she started having kids, he would sodomize her. It was the only way that he was willing to have intercourse with her anymore. Nancy was asked when the physical abuse started. She said the first time he hit her was just before they had their third child in 1999. Robert had a business trip planned and it just happened to coincide with the due date. 
So in order to be there when the baby was born, Robert wanted to schedule the birth of the baby a little bit early and have their labor induced. But she told Robert she refused to be induced, and so he hauled off and punched her twice, sending a seven-month pregnant Nancy flying into a wall. And she fell into this wall, she claimed, with so much force that the drywall cracked, and Robert had to go to the hospital to have a fracture in his hand treated. Now, dreamers, all this time, people close to the Kessels have said that once Nancy and Robert had their third child, that Nancy's entire personality changed. Bryna has said it, the housekeepers have said it, and even Robert has said it. But from the witness stand, Nancy would testify that Robert's personality was the one that changed after the birth of their third child. That when he would come home from work, all he wanted to do was drink and have sex, and it was always sodomy. That the sex was only about what he wanted, and he always took what he wanted, and if she tried to fight back, he would become more aggressive and abusive, forcing himself on her, pulling her by her hair, and he'd force her down and do what he wanted to do. She described an occasion when she tried to stop him from turning her over onto her stomach, but he ended up grabbing her and forcing her to turn over, causing two of her ribs to break. The next day, she took herself to the hospital where she was supposedly told about her broken ribs. Nancy told the court that during the time that she was in Vermont during the SARS outbreak, that she made an attempt at taking her own life by poisoning herself with carbon monoxide in the garage by leaving their car running. But as she sat there waiting for the fumes to kill her, she began thinking about her children asleep inside the house, so she thought better of it, switched off the ignition, and went back into the home. She told the court that of all the questionable internet searches that the computer forensic analyst testified about that she did, those were searches that she did while looking for ways to kill herself. By the end of 2002, the physical abuse was getting worse. There was one time when Robert became so angry with her that he grabbed her by the hair and smashed her head into the living room wall. And by 2003, according to Nancy's testimony, Robert was becoming physically abusive towards their children too, set off by the littlest of things. He'd grab them, shake them, scream at them if they did anything that annoyed him. When it came to the marriage counseling, Nancy said that when she brought up the subject of divorce, Robert lost his temper when they got home and screamed at her that she would never, ever divorce him. After two days of dragging Robert, it came time for Nancy to tell the court about the night he died. She talked about how the Tanzers had been over at their apartment that afternoon and their daughters wanted to make them some milkshakes. Nancy made mention of how it had just been Halloween, so they wanted the shakes to be more colorful, so they added food coloring to it. Now, it's thought that Nancy said this in order to explain why there may have been a weird taste to the milkshake, or maybe if the girls had used some ingredients that were spoiled, which caused the side effects that Andrew Tanzer later experienced. Because it's never really been made clear as to why he was served a spiked milkshake along with Robert, though it's been speculated that it was an attempt to make this not appear to be something that was specifically directed towards Robert, that the whole thing was a completely accidental event or whatever. When asked if she put drugs in a milkshake, she said she did not. 
Those were milkshake that she fully expected the children to consume as well. And there was no way she would do anything like that, not to her husband and certainly not to her children. Later on that evening, Nancy said Robert did sit down with her and told her that he was filing for divorce and that because she was in a state of poor mental health, that he would be taking primary care of the kids. She said that as he told her this, he sat her down in the bedroom, but then he walked over and picked up the baseball bat that he kept next to his side of the bed. From there, he stood between Nancy and her only way out of the room, which was the door leading to the hallway with the bat in his hands and he was slowly passing it back and forth between his hands in a threatening manner. She said that she took offense to the insinuation that she was not well mentally and since he had a weapon in his hand, she picked one up for herself, the heavy figurine sitting on the dresser. She demanded to know exactly what he was talking about when he said that she wasn't well. Nancy said she started to get in his face a thing she knew that he hated, but she was angry and she was ready for the fight that she knew she was provoking. She pointed at him and demanded that he explain himself. He pushed her hand away, but she went right back to pointing at him. He pushed her hand away again, but she persisted. And then he grabbed her hand with a tight grip, at which point in order to try to get him to let go of her, she spit in his face. And once she did that, Robert let go of her hand, but then he slapped her across the face, knocking her to the ground. She lost hold of the figurine, and it fell onto the bedroom floor. From there, she said he bent down and took hold of her by the ankles and began dragging her across the room. He picked her up and shoved her down onto the bed with the intentions of sodomizing her again. But Nancy decided to fight back. As they struggled, she managed to get up off the bed. She rolled off and fell onto the floor. Robert fell down onto the ground as well, and they continued to fight and wrestle. Then Nancy told the court that Robert began kicking her on the side of her abdomen. And remember, she told Bryna that she had broken ribs again. This was the second set of broken ribs, I guess. And she was on the ground, taking each kick. She spotted the figurine that she had dropped she reached for it and blindly swung it at Robert. When she looked to see what she had struck, she saw blood flowing from a gash in Robert's head. He became even more enraged and told her that he was going to kill her. His exact words were, she said, I'm gonna fucking kill you, bitch. And if you remember the Jody Arias case, it's the exact same thing that Jody said that Travis said to her when she went to start to attack him as well. This, this whole fight scene is so reminiscent of the alleged fight scene that Jody Arias supposedly had with Travis Alexander in his bathroom. But anyway, it's that I'm going to fucking kill you bitch line that gets them every time, right? So next she said Robert picked up the baseball bat and he began attacking her with it. Still holding on to the figurine, she hit Robert in the head with it again. From there, she says she has no memory of how many times she hit him. She had no memory of anything that happened after that, not until she realized she was sitting on the floor of her bedroom 
with Robert nearby dead. So again, like the fog that Jody Arias was in, so was Nancy Kissel, floated all the way over to Hong Kong as well. I love it how these people have no memory when anything comes up that's going to be very incriminating for them. They just all of a sudden have this amnesia. So the baseball bat was entered into evidence. Nancy was asked to identify the bat as being the one she was threatened with, and she did, reminding the court that he said that he was going to kill her, and the only thing she was trying to do that night was to get him to stop hitting her with the bat. When Nancy was asked about everything else that happened subsequent to Robert's death, her comings and goings from the apartment in the middle of the night, as seen on surveillance video carrying newly purchased items into the house, where she had gone at that hour in her car, going to work at the kids' school the next day, anyone that she talked to on the phone, getting rid of all the bloodied items in their bedroom, the bed linens, the comforter, the pillows. She told the court she had no memory of doing any of it. And Nancy told the court that she had no memory of when it dawned on her that Robert was no longer alive. She was asked about the rolling of Robert's body inside the area rug, wrapping it up with packaging tape to explain how her fingerprints got on the sticky side of the tape. When she called her apartment building maintenance crew to carry the rug down into the storage area, she had no memory, no idea how or why or when any of that happened. After Nancy's attorney walked her through her direct testimony, it was the prosecutor's turn to ask her the tough questions. And the first thing he wanted to know is if Nancy was ready to tell the court that she was indeed the one who killed Robert and she said yes. He also wanted Nancy to tell the court that she killed him by hitting him about the head with a heavy object and she admitted that she did and she told the court that she did so with the heavy figurine. But she again insisted under cross-examination that she had no memory of what happened next. She didn't remember going to the police to file the report that Robert had assaulted her nor did she remember her father arriving in Hong Kong. Next, the attorney pointed out to Nancy that as he was presenting his case, he could see that Nancy was jotting down notes and giving them to her attorney. He said he was interested in knowing when it came to the case against her, what specifically did she take issue with? And Nancy told the court that there were a lot of things that she did not think was fair or accurate. And he asked for an example after thinking about it for a moment, she said that she would disagree with her housekeeper's assessment of her having a bad temper. Nancy was questioned about putting drugs into Robert's expensive bottles of scotch, and she admitted to the court that she did put a drug into a scotch that she had been prescribed to treat her insomnia. But as she explained, the reason she did it is because he had become so violent, she thought maybe if she could get him to fall asleep, that she would be spared all of the abuse. She said that the first time she did it was while they were still living in the United States. Then she tried it again after they had moved to Hong Kong, but she saw that the drug that she had crushed up didn't dissolve properly. She could see that it had settled at the bottom of the bottle, so she ended up throwing that scotch away and replacing it and never tried adding any more drugs to his drinks again. So when asked about all of the physical and sexual abuse that she was supposedly subjected to, when these things would happen, was there ever a time when she would cry out in fear or pain? And Nancy said that she had many times. She was asked if anyone ever noticed her cries, and she said that she could not be sure. Once the housekeepers left for the day, that's when Robert would begin abusing her. 
Nancy was asked about Robert's alleged drug use, and she said that started back in 1989 when he was going to business school, and she said she was working to support him. Since she was a breadwinner at the time, he wanted to know how much she would say Robert was spending on cocaine on the regular, and she said it was at least $100 per day. That he had a $100 a day cocaine habit, and she was supposedly paying for all of it on waitress wages. She was challenged on that. How could you two afford to live in a nice apartment that the two of you had in Manhattan and a minimum of $100 a day, that's a $3,000 a month on cocaine, working as a waitress? Nancy said she did side work as well as she was attempting to launch her own catering business. Next, the prosecutor moved on to Robert's cocaine habit in Hong Kong. Where was Robert's supplier? Nancy said she had no idea. He asked her if she was worried about the possible repercussions of getting caught with illegal drugs in this part of the world, that is in Asian countries. Asian countries have notoriously strict laws when it comes to drug possession and drug trafficking. In fact, Indonesia has the toughest laws in the world. If you are caught with drugs, you can be sentenced to life in prison or possibly even sentenced to death. But Nancy said it didn't cross her mind. She was more concerned about how the drugs would impact Robert's overall health. Nancy was asked about all of the internet searches found on Robert's computer, all the gay stuff and whatnot. Did she have any idea that Robert was interested in bisexual or gay men? She said that she was surprised by those searches, but then she said it started to make sense why he was always wanting to have the kind of sex that he wanted from her. Once she had heard about all of those searches, she wondered if she ever knew her husband at all. But the prosecutor challenged Nancy as to why she never told anyone about the abuse that she alleged Robert had subjected her to, suggesting that the reasons why she never confided in anyone is because there was nothing to confide about. Nancy said that in her circle of friends, nobody liked to talk about those types of dark topics. Nancy was asked about Mike Del Priore. She told the court that he was 10 years younger than her and was someone that she found easy to talk to, but said that she had not been in contact with him for a while. She was asked about the time she and Robert traveled to New York for a back surgery that Robert needed. The prosecutor suggested that she went with him so she could visit with Mike Del Priore again while her husband was in the hospital, but Nancy said she went because Robert wanted her to go. So then the prosecutor asked, if Robert had this debilitating back problem that required surgery and then recovery time, how is it that he was able to so violently abuse you physically and sexually? Nancy explained that Robert took a lot of pain meds, and when he did, he was capable of anything. Circling back to the affair with Mike, the prosecutor presented to the court several love emails the two exchanged how they expressed how much they wanted and desired to be with one another. Nancy admitted to the court that she was having a relationship with Mike, and the prosecutor challenged her, telling her that she was no longer interested in her marriage. Mike was the man that she wanted to be with, and while he was the TV repair guy that lived in a trailer park, he really hit the jackpot being with her. She was the one that had all kinds of money that a guy like him could only dream of. 
In order to demonstrate how much the relationship between Nancy and Mike had continued full speed ahead, even after Nancy insisted to Robert that it was over, even after she had gone back to Hong Kong with Robert after the SARS epidemic was through, the prosecutor tallied up the phone calls that were made between the two of them in the months leading up to Robert's killing. During the month of September of 2003, Nancy called Mike 52 times, much more than an average of once per day inching close to twice a day. In October, the number of calls Nancy made to Mike more than doubled, 106 calls. And notably, on the day that Nancy picked up her prescription for Rehypnol, she called Mike a total of seven times before she went to the pharmacy and after. Shortly thereafter, following Robert's back surgery, the activity on Nancy's laptop revealed that she made numerous Google searches related to drug overdoses, though she said she was looking to overdose herself in an act of suicide. The same day that those searches were made, Nancy and Mike engaged in a phone call that lasted for more than three hours. While the prosecutor probably would not have been able to say this in court, I'll say it here, and it was suggested in the comments in our Facebook group, uh, to me, this strongly suggests that Nancy may have been discussing her plans to drug and possibly kill Robert with Mike. That Mike was in some way in the know or maybe even encouraging Nancy to do it so they could be together. The prosecutor did point out that there is no way that Mike, a TV repair guy living alone in a trailer, would be able to afford the international calls that he had been making to Nancy. But he did so with impunity, knowing that in the end, he was going to end up with a wealthy widow. Nancy countered this by telling the court that Mike did have legitimate work of his own and that he earned money. Nancy told the court that while she was in the U.S. dodging the SARS outbreak, that Robert did call her and tell her that he was aware of the affair that she'd been having. The prosecutor accused Nancy of being concerned with the possibility of divorce, with her being involved in an extramarital affair, and how that would impact the outcome of the divorce, and how things would go in favor of Robert when it came to marital assets, money, and child custody though she insisted her only concern was her kids. When asked about how Robert discovered Nancy's second cell phone, she said that she wasn't aware of how he came to know about it. But then he pressed on. Well, based on what she had been telling the court up to this point, Robert being Robert and doing all the cruel and abusive things that he had done in the past, didn't he haul off and smack her around or beat her up over the fact that she'd been hiding this phone? Nancy had to admit that no, he didn't react violently to the discovery, and she couldn't explain why, seeing as he had been so violent over much lesser things in the past. The prosecutor reminded the jury of the occasions that Robert had confided in his private investigator and in Nancy's best friend, Bryna, that he was starting to suspect that Nancy was slipping him some sort of drugs or poisons in an attempt to incapacitate him or to kill him. Along with that, the jury was reminded of the fact that each of the five drugs that Nancy had procured in the days leading up to Robert's killing, that all of them were found to be in his stomach contents that were examined by the toxicologist as a part of his autopsy. All of the drugs found in Robert's system were prescribed to Nancy and Nancy alone, and she obtained all of those prescriptions improperly by going to different doctors because she should not have been in possession of that many different kinds of sedatives. Nancy said that she did not do that, but 
you know, it is what it is. She got the prescriptions. She shouldn't have had that variety and combination of drugs prescribed to her. And all of them were found in Robert. End of story. Nancy was questioned about her trip to visit Bryna in California and how she had had the breast augmentation as well as some liposuction scheduled at the same time. Nancy told the court that she was having the procedure done at the behest of her husband, that he was the one who insisted that she had those procedures done because he was the one who was unhappy about what having three children had done to her body. She told the court that she ended up postponing the trip and the appointments because there was a conflict in her schedule. But reaching back to when we discussed this previously, it seemed as though she was still insisting on going. At least that's what I gathered based on our conversations with Bryna. And this was after Robert was killed. Nancy told Bryna that she had gotten into a fight with Robert and that she had broken a rib or two. And Bryna expressed her doubts that the surgeon would perform the procedures if she had broken ribs. But Nancy told her to not cancel the appointments. So she was going to go ahead and get all this work done anyway. She said it was because Robert wanted it, but by the time she told Bryna to keep her appointments, he was already dead. Nancy ended up not going to California because, well, she got booked on murder charges. The prosecutor presented a number of pictures of Nancy that she took with Robert. One picture taken with former President George H.W. Bush, which, dreamers, by the way, I did post in the Facebook group. We'll talk about that in the next part, though, why I posted that. Uh, George Bush was in Hong Kong for some event honoring him for some reason. And in the pictures, the prosecutor pointed out just how happy and jubilant Nancy appeared to be. She doesn't appear to be downtrodden. She doesn't appear to be the images of a woman being beat down on the regular by her allegedly physically abusive husband. And in none of the pictures do there appear to be any remnants of injuries, abrasions, or bruises that Nancy said were always left behind on her body following Robert's attacks. Nancy explained to the court that those gleaming smiles were her attempts at putting up a brave front because that's what battered women do. We have to pretend like we're okay when we're really hurting inside. In addition to that, she said she became very well adept at covering up her injuries with makeup. When it came to some of Nancy's actions following Robert's death prior to anyone knowing that he was actually dead, the prosecutor related to the court how Nancy told different attending physicians conflicting stories about some of the injuries she sustained in the alleged fight that she had had with Robert. She had recounted the fight to one doctor by explaining an injury to her hand as being a result of her defending herself against Robert's attacks by using a dinner fork. Okay, so on one of Nancy's hands, she had a strange-looking puncture wound that appeared as though it could have been made by the prong of a fork. But the prosecutor put forth a theory that the injury was actually caused by the figurine that she used to bash Robert about the head, that she sustained that puncture wound when on the fifth blow the figurine actually broke causing that specific injury to her hand. Nancy told a different doctor attending to her that while she was being attacked with a baseball bat, that she grabbed the closest thing to her, and that was that figurine, and she used it to defend her life. But when it came time to talk about these doctor's appointments in court, Nancy testified she had no memory of talking to any doctors about any of this. 
The prosecutor scoffed at the notion that Nancy had no memory of anything after she began beating Robert about the head with the figurine, that she was pretending amnesia, but all Nancy could say is that she isn't aware that she has any memory loss. And that's probably one of the best non-answers I've ever heard. The prosecutor challenged Nancy's memory loss, that when it came to things that were helpful to her case, she had clear memories, when there were things that were detrimental to her case, she had no memories. As this particular day of testimony for Nancy was drawing to a close, the prosecutor finally stuck it to her. The way that those five blows landed on Robert's head, those were delivered to him as he slept, not while you two were in a life or death struggle, him with a bat and her grabbing a heavy figurine to swing at him. If they had been in an all-out drag-out fight, the blows to Robert's head would have been more scattered and chaotic. Not five well-delivered, closely grouped blows to one spot of his skull. An exasperated Nancy Kissel cried out on the witness stand, He was trying to kill me! My God, he was trying to kill me! And then she broke down into seemingly uncontainable sobs. The next thing the prosecutor brought up was some damage that was caused to the figurine that she had used to bludgeon Robert with. As he showed it to the court, he pointed out a large dent in the metal base of the item. He asked Nancy about that damage to the base, and she explained that she held it up to defend herself as the baseball bat that Robert was wielding came crashing down on it, causing that damage. Again, the prosecutor scoffed at the notion that Nancy would have had the strength to fend off a blow of that magnitude from a baseball bat while continuing to maintain hold of this figurine. And she explained that she had a grip on it with both hands and she was doing so in order to defend her life. Okay, so dreamers, are we buying what Nancy Kissel is trying to sell here? But she managed to weather a baseball bat attack with minimal superficial injuries. While she did say she had broken ribs, she did not say she sustained those injuries from the bat, but rather from being kicked. And there's no evidence that her ribs were ever broken. And I guess I'll spoil it for you now. The doctor will come and testify that Nancy did not have broken ribs. I've never been attacked with a baseball bat and I'm fairly certain that if I was on the receiving end of that after just one or two hits with a bat I would not be very capable of doing much in the way of defending myself anymore I mean if you really think about it he's supposedly coming at her with the bat and she manages to grab this heavy figurine and this is an item that she's going to have to use up close and personal in order to land any blows. And she said she held onto it with two hands while the bat came crashing down on that. Wouldn't that just send all of this like reverberation through your hands and your arms and just cause you all this pain? And ultimately, don't you think she would drop the thing? Anyway, I, I just don't know. I just don't think it would feel very good at all to have a, be holding this statue and have a bat come landing full force down onto it while I'm holding it. That would hurt. But as I was saying, she grabs this figurine. And this is an item that she is going to have to use 
in an up close and personal manner in order to land any blows, unlike a bat that can give you some distance between yourself and the person you're attacking. And that somehow she managed to hold up being swung at with this bat and that the thing came crashing down on the figurine that she managed to just put between herself and the bat like she's some kind of Jedi. And then at some point, she got the better of Robert and she got the upper hand and she managed to swing that figurine three times landing square into his skull in the exact same spot every single time. The morning after Robert's killing, Nancy called Mike Del Priore, speaking to him for almost a half hour. The prosecutor asked her if she told him what she had done to Robert, and Nancy claimed she did not remember the details of that particular conversation. Two days after Robert was killed, Nancy spoke to Mike six times on the phone. Also that day, Nancy made her first trip to see a doctor about injuries to her body. That doctor would later describe Nancy as having been distraught. She said that her entire body was hurting, that she was having difficulty moving as a result of being physically and sexually abused by Robert. But it was also on that very same day that Nancy was supposedly hardly able to move that she went on a massive shopping spree. And surveillance cameras at her apartment complex captured images of her bringing in brand new pieces of luggage and new linens and a new large living room rug all on her own while supposedly in so much pain from Robert's abuse. But the cameras were showing her moving with relative ease, even with the heavy and cumbersome new rug that she bought. Nancy explained to the court that everything she was doing, she was doing for her children. And the new bedding was necessary because all of the bleeding that had happened was caused by her being sodomized by Robert, not by him getting bashed about the head and killed right. So the doctor who saw Nancy two days after she killed Robert testified that Nancy had come to see her complaining about achingness all over her body. In the book, A Family Curse, the doctor's observations were described as follows. Nancy told the doctor that Robert was attempting to have sex with her, but Nancy resisted, telling him that she did not want to engage in any sexual activity with him. At that point, Nancy said Robert began attacking her by hitting her and kicking her, at which point Nancy managed to grab hold of a fork to try to defend herself. But when she grabbed it, she grabbed it by the end with the prongs, not by the handle, and this caused the puncture wound to her hand. The doctor noted that Nancy's lips were dry and swollen and that her fingers were swollen too, the ones on the same hand as the puncture wound. The doctor felt as though the injuries were consistent with the story that Nancy was relating. She saw a bruise on Nancy's right arm. Her arm was in a great deal of pain, but she was unable to move it as she normally would be able to. Nancy said she had severe pain along her rib cage and along the front side of her upper torso. She also said she had difficulty with her range of motion in her back. But after taking x-rays, the doctor noted that Nancy had suffered no fractured or broken ribs, no broken bones anywhere. During her testimony, the doctor said that she was becoming somewhat impatient with Nancy while treating her on that particular day because no matter where the doctor examined Nancy, Nancy complained of severe pain and discomfort when it was clear that over most of her body, there were no signs of any trauma or any injury at all. The doctor was shown some images of Nancy lugging around the heavy items on the surveillance video. And while she said it seems that Nancy was moving with relative ease, considering that this was the same day that she had examined her, 
She said if Nancy had intended to bring this assault case to court, then that would explain why she would have overstated how injured she was when she visited the doctor. Pictures of the rolled up carpet that contained Robert's body were shown to the doctor while she was on the stand and she was asked, in that pain that Nancy claimed that she was in when she visited you, would Nancy have been able to do all of this? Move this rug, roll Robert into it, etc., etc. The doctor said, you know, when people are in that desperate state when something like this has happened, if she did in fact kill her husband, people can do extraordinary things when they are trying to hide and cover up. But the way that Nancy was, the condition she was in when she visited two days after the killing, the way that she was complaining about the pain, she did not think that Nancy would have been able to do all that. But if she wasn't injured, as she said she was, then yes, she believed Nancy could have moved that rug and rolled Robert's corpse into it. The doctor was asked what she would have expected to see if Nancy had been attacked by a baseball bat. The doctor said that there would have certainly been areas of bruising on her body. Likely there would have been bone fractures. If Nancy had been hit on the head, she most likely would have been rendered unconscious. She saw no evidence of Nancy having been struck with an instrument like a bat, nor did Nancy have any kinds of injuries that would have been indicative of her attempting to defend herself. In other words, defensive wounds where she may have tried to protect her head or face with her arms. There were no bruises or injuries consistent with that at all. The defense brought on a parade of witnesses that at one time or another noticed an injury on Nancy's body. Nancy's dad did testify that he got along well with Robert it wasn't until November of 2003 when Nancy called him and told him that Robert had attacked her and stormed out of the apartment that he was even made aware that there was any abuse going on. Over the course of his daughter's marriage, she never confided in him that she was being abused by Robert. A friend of Nancy's testified that back in 1999, while attending a birthday party, she noticed that Nancy was wearing dark sunglasses indoors, at which point Nancy moved the glasses down a little bit, exposing that she had a black eye. Nancy attributed it to rough sex and tried to laugh it off. On another occasion, when the same friend saw a bruise on Nancy's face, Nancy told her it was a result of rough housing with her kids. Another witness was called to the stand. She worked at the U.S. consulate office in Hong Kong, and she became acquainted with the Kissels, having known them for about five years. She told the court that she did not seem to think that Nancy was realizing that Robert was dead because she kept asking about his well-being when it had already been discovered that he had been killed. She described Robert as somewhat nitpicky and overly critical, and there were times when he openly gave Nancy a hard time about her inability to get the kids to behave in public. This witness also said that she had seen some bruises on Nancy sometime in 2002, which Nancy explained were the result of playing with her kids. All of the witnesses who testified on behalf of Nancy described her as being very down-to-earth, a good mom, and devoted to her family. Nancy's defense team presented a computer expert witness of their own to discuss some of the searches that were found on the Kissel family home computer, the ones involving the gay sex in Taiwan and whatnot. It was said that the timing of those searches coincided with the time that Nancy and kids were away from the home and when Robert was scheduled to go on a business trip to Taiwan in the coming days. The expert told the court that Robert had scrolled through a number of Google search result pages, but he didn't click on any of the results. Searches of keywords such as gay sex, wife is a bitch, anal sex, and other related terms. But when asked questions by the prosecution, he did say that 
He was instructed to look only for these types of homosexual searches that Robert may have conducted or pages that he may have visited and that he did not make any further analysis of the computer. So the insinuation is that is that it could have been someone else who made those searches. And of all the history that could have been looked up on Robert's computer, those searches only came up on two consecutive days and they were only found on the home desktop computer. None of these searches came up on Robert's personal laptop. Also discovered on the Kissel home computer was some software called Porn Dialer. It was designed to give the computer user a faster access to sexually explicit websites. At the time, dial-up internet was still widely used, which was pretty slow for those of us who remember it. So going to these sites with a dial-up internet might not be all that entertaining if the images or videos are slow, lagging, or pixelated. So the software had been installed on the Kissel's desktop home computer. And according to what the expert found on the computer, the exact date it was installed was September 14th, 2002. And it just so happened on that date that Robert Kissel was out of town on a business trip and could not have been the person sitting at that computer installing that software. So with all of this said and done, what about the DNA? Is there any DNA evidence or forensic evidence that can corroborate the things that Nancy is saying happened in the Kissel apartment on the evening of November 2nd, 2003? Well, the DNA expert was called to the stand, and his name was Dr. Peng Chi Ming. He told the court that there was no blood found on the baseball bat that Nancy claimed Robert was swinging at her. There was no DNA that belonged to either Robert or Nancy. But there was a DNA of an unidentified female found on it, and that was it. Nancy's attorney suggested that maybe the lack of DNA had to do with the fact that the bat had been sitting in storage for several months before it was tested. But the doctor said no. If there had been any other DNA on it, it would have shown up in the testing. Nancy's attorney thought it was laughable for the doctor to insinuate that the bat had only been ever handled by one person. But the DNA expert said that wasn't what he was saying. All he was saying is that the DNA found on the bat was that of one unidentified female. Another forensic expert witness was called to discuss the dent in the figurine that the defense claimed was made by the baseball bat as Robert swung it downwards towards Nancy and she used that figurine to deflect that blow, causing the indentation in the base of it. After conducting numerous tests, the expert testified that it was his opinion that the dent in the figurine was not caused by a strike with a baseball bat, but it could not be ruled out completely. He said if that bat had hit the figurine, he would have likely have found fragments of wood from the bat left on it, strike patterns, or the cross transfer of the material that the figurine was made out of on the bat itself, none of which was present. Nancy's defense criticized the testing methods used, pointing out that they did not even use the same type or size of bat that the Kissels had when conducting the test. It was an effort to undermine the findings of the forensics when it came to whether or not the bat actually struck and damaged the figurine. A little while ago, I did allude to the fact that there was a little bit of controversy surrounding the bat, possibly some tampering. I will address that in the next part of this series coming up.
Okay, dreamers, that will bring us to the end of the testimony in Nancy Kissel's murder trial. When we come back for the next part in the series, we are going to go through the closing statements from both the prosecution and the defense and their summaries of the cases that they presented. Is Nancy guilty of murder or is she not guilty by reason of self-defense? We will pick up the story from there and find out the decision that the jury will render in this case. And after a bit more discussion about Nancy's cases, we are going to finally turn the focus of the story back on to the other Kissel brother, Andrew. Remember where we left off with him about the time that Robert and Nancy's marriage was coming crashing down. Andrew Kissel's house of cards was beginning to as well. And I'm really looking forward to getting into where the story is going to take us next. So as always, thank you for listening. I will be back very soon, probably towards the end of next week, because I'm going to California. I was going to try to wrap this up into five parts, but I think it's probably going to be six because I just don't want to leave out any of these juicy details, but I will be back soon. Oh, and I have a really good series lined up for those of you on Patreon coming up too. It's a story that has always stuck with me because it has so many heartbreaking moments in such a short period of time. And it's not a California story. It'll be another vacation series, but I don't think you'll be disappointed. Okay, again, thank you. Thank you for all the love. Thank you for all your support. Thank you for all your understanding. I'm your host, Roseanne. And until next time, sweet dreams. <laughs>